everybody, and welcome to The Wench Bench, where friends sit and talk about fabulous fictional females and how their stories have influenced us throughout our lives. My name is Fonda. And my name is Allison. Today, Allison is going to be talking about Princess Mononoke. Yay! Yes, and kind of all the other female characters, too. <laughs> yes, there's many, but as the, the movie coins, Princess Mononoke is pretty, pretty, pretty damn cool. Sure is. I love her so much. <laughs> Do you, Allison, want so, to talk about like the premise or the quick setting or any like interesting quick facts yes. before you dive in? So I do have some quick facts and then I have a summary. I tried to write the summary by myself and I realized just how wild this movie was. <laughs> and like, yeah, just how much plot is jammed in. For those who don't know, Princess Mononoke is a 1997 film from Studio Ghibli. It was first released in Japan with the name Mononoke Hime. Do you know why Hime, Allison? Uh, Hime is like, it's kind of like princess or queen, I read. It's but it has to be at for, the end. Yeah, it's usually for yeah. like a princess, yeah. Yeah, and I actually read that when they were trying to translate it to English, Hayao Miyazaki had kind of said that there was no, there was no translation for Mononoke in English because it means spirit or monster and a princess monster doesn't really <laughs> roll off the tongue in the same way i guess sadly sadly no but that's why as a kid as with many things such as the legend of zelda games and whatnot not realizing that link was the <laughs> was the good guy yep, yep. <laughs> like i always just when I first played it, it's like, oh yeah, like clearly I'm playing as Zelda. Yeah, like, <laughs> and like I blocked I the fact the that everybody was calling the character Link, and I was just like, nope. <laughs> You're like, nope. Nope. Zelda. Um, but the titular character is actually named San. <laughs> just like Fonda's dog. Oh, I love my dog. <laughs> <laughs> It does make sense. So, here's a summary taken from IMDb, written by Christopher Taguchi. While protecting his village from a rampaging bear god slash demon, a confident young warrior prince, Ashitaka, is stricken by a deadly curse. To save his life, he must journey to the forest of the west. Once there, he's embroiled in a fierce campaign that humans were waging on the forest. The ambitious Lady Eboshi and her loyal clan use their guns against the gods of the forest and a brave young woman, Princess Mononoke, who was raised by a wolf god. Ashitaka sees the good in both sides and tries to stem the flood of blood. This is met by animosity by both sides and as they each see him as supporting the enemy. It's a it's a wild, surprisingly violent movie from Studio Ghibli. Yeah, there's a, a handful of, I think, movies Studio Ghibli has put out that you're like, oh, that <laughs> oh, is okay. a little aggressive. Like, um, there was a lot more blood 
and like <laughs> decapitation. Deca- yeah, decapitation than I had expected when I first watched the movie. <laughs> Lots of war and limbs being mm-hmm. ripped off. And <laughs> A lot of gun violence. Lots of gun violence. So this movie takes place in feudal era Japan and our main hero Ashitaka is a prince of a clan that was actually wiped out and has disappeared from history because of emperors and wars and stuff and so he's a really interesting character because he is a prince who comes from a small poor village but he still is very proper and kind of princely, which I think is sweet. Even though the movie is following him, I find that he's kind of being controlled by the desires and whims of women. Why do you say that? Is it because of San and Lady Oboshi and yeah. that? Or do you think it's because of how he... Like, do you think it's because, like, those two characters are possibly, like, manipulating the flow of his character story? Or do you think it's because him as a character values and respects the, these female characters that come in and therefore his actions are kind of, like, influenced by possible thoughts or views or previous interactions from the characters? Like, I'm curious why you think, why you mm-hmm. think that. So I think he's... He's more influenced by them because his kind of driving force is this curse that he has put on him. Mm-hmm. It feeds off of anger and violence. And this curse originated due to this fight between the forest gods and Iron Town, as it is called, which is the settlement that Lady Eboshi leads. So because his peaceful life was interrupted by violence, he then goes to seek that with unclouded eyes, as he says in the movie. Mm -hmm. And because he is going there as a neutral party, you have two people on either side who have these strong opinions and these strong values, whereas he is simply trying to be neutral and trying to get everybody to kind of get along or put aside their hatred and the violence. He very much acts as like an equalizer, which is a pretty interesting role because it really allows the two women who are kind of ultimately leading this fight to take the starring role in the movie because they're so cool. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, um, I remember at first watching the movie, I definitely again, like like you said, sometimes when you see or get a title Unless it's something where you're like, oh, that's the name of a place or that's like a location or a kingdom name or whatever. Or it's just like a <laughs> really ambiguous title. But sometimes when you hear like like Princess Mononoke, I remember at first I thought it was going to have a princess be the lead at the start of the story. So it's very interesting mm-hmm. how it starts with Ashitaka and how it's kind of like him navigating both sides of a conflict Mm -hmm. and how his interaction with Princess Mononoke comes up. One of the things I truly love in regards to Ghibli films is that it's very rare that there is a true villain in the stories. 
there are so many shades of gray that he is able to balance in a way to really reflect reality in a way and kind of teach children who are watching these shows that it isn't necessarily all black and white. There's not always a bad guy with a curly mustache cackling in the corner planning to blow up the world. Mm -hmm. Lady Eboshi is trying to do right by the people who she feels responsible for. And Princess Mononoke is doing the same thing for the spirits of the forest. She is trying to do right by them. And so there's not really a villain. There's just two sides of the same coin in a way. And it's really cool to see because he's the one who we're supposed to kind of connect with and follow along the story with because we are supposed to see both sides. We're not necessarily supposed to be like, well, clearly San is right. Yeah. Or clearly Lady Eboshi is right. Like we're supposed to see they both have value in mm-hmm. their opinions. In a way, is... I feel like Ashitaka is kind of like the narrator. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're going to kind of talk about the two main female characters and sort of their surrounding support systems separately. Um, and then I would just want to talk about a couple moments from the movie that I love. <laughs> Please do. So first is San. She was born, obviously, by human parents. And they were doing something in the forest that caused the wolf god to, or the wolf spirit, to become angry. And her parents threw her at the wolf to, like, get away. Basically, they, like, sacrificed her. But instead of killing an innocent child, the wolf spirit named Moro actually took her in and raised her as one of her own pups. So now she has two wolf brothers <laughs> and a wolf mom who can talk and is voiced by Gillian Anderson, who is just a fabulous actress. And she was raised to believe that she was a wolf. And so she sees she sees the conflict and the idea of humans cutting down the forest as like a disrespect, as a danger to those who truly showed her kindness in her life. And she's kind of feral and confident and she's good at fighting and she wears this cool mask and this like wolf fur cape and she rides on the wolves and she goes into battle with them and she's truly like one of the pack which I think is just this really cool dynamic for her yeah I feel like um when I'm viewing San I didn't get this the first time I watched it growing up as as a kid but I watched it more recently just because of um, showing it in my Japanese classes I was teaching uh, last year for high school students. And I remember just being like, wow, she's very black and white. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of her upbringing. Like she doesn't necessarily understand the morally gray areas or like reading between the lines. Like it's either this or it's this. Kind of like with nature, right? Like it's either really nice out and the weather's great and you can traverse up the mountain and everything's fine. Or there's a thunderstorm and you suddenly touch poison ivy and like your day's really shitty. Like there's no (laughs) in between. Yes. She sees herself as a wolf Mm -hmm. and she sees them as humans. And she does not, at the beginning of the movie, she does not see a way for her to ever cross over. But in meeting Ashitaka and in having him show her kindness and 
show her the good parts of humanity, she, you watch her struggle with that. You watch her talk about how much she hates him. And in a way, she's really saying that she hates that part of herself. She hates that she kind of hates herself that she's human mm-hmm. and she just wishes that it could be simple and she could just be a wolf. And it's, it's a really complex character to present to children in the fact that she is, she does struggle throughout the movie, the almost desire, the like slight temptation of giving into that humanity a little bit. And you get these really tender moments between her and Ashitaka where they, they really are like experiencing a human connection in a way she never has before. Mm -hmm. She's experiencing that warmth and that, that understanding that comes from being, well, the same species as a person. <laughs> we also see her come in. She has such a strong entrance. She's like riding on the back of a wolf, fighting a bunch of like people with cannons. And she like breaks into this fortress and she's trying to kill Lady Eboshi. And you just, she comes in so strong and so so ready to fight and to give up everything that she has in order to save it. Mm-hmm. The first impression is a big impact. It really is. Like, God, I wanted to be her so bad when I was a little girl. Like, oh, I wanted a big wolf friend. <laughs> and... <laughs> like... <laughs> uh, oh, no, I, totally, I wanted it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> and she's, like, really strong confident physically capable a little naive which is fine Mm -hmm. and it's not like naive about everything it's just that like her understanding and world perspective can make her come across as a little naive about particular aspects about the entire world Mm -hmm. which isn't a bad thing i think because it just makes her like she's up front she will point out something if it's wrong or if it's right Mm -hmm. and someone will be like oh yeah but I mean did you not consider this little aspect and she's like no what like you know what I mean like she's like why do I need to consider that I see the the main word on your side and the main word on mine side I don't see any like little lines I need to read she's very like it's this and this and I'm acting accordingly and I think for some people like rewatching it, I think that in a way some people could be like, oh, well, maybe she's naive because of like the limited understanding she has of humans and how they want to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Or in maybe some cases people are like, oh, she's naive. Like maybe other people are like the wolves are taking advantage of her and they took away all this other stuff. So they made her like naive. And really, I think it's just that. It's not that maybe she's naive, but more so that she's, I don't like this word, but it's the only word I can think of, pure? I can see that. Like, like not that she's, like, pure and angelic and, like, <laughs> a virgin, but just, like, she's, like, pure in heart, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like, she doesn't have a bunch of stuff that's, like, making her second guess a lot of things early on. Yeah, in not being raised by humans she didn't necessarily go through the kind of experiences that would shape a human to be who they are yeah it's a completely like you said like pure but not really like she's almost raw mm-hmm. like she doesn't have as many nuanced feelings about things all of her feelings are very 
true to what they are. There is, there is anger, there is desire, there is like honor. And yeah, she's very, I like the word raw. She's very raw. Yeah. I think that's the good word I was looking for. Not pure, but raw. Yeah. Yeah. Like she hasn't quite been no, no smooth edges on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Whereas conversely, Lady Eboshi is like all smooth edges. Mm -hmm. That woman is so honed by the world around her. She carries herself like a lady and she knows what she wants and she wants to be powerful, but she also wants to help people, which I think is something that isn't necessarily shown a lot that there, there's not necessarily just a drive for power. There can be other good things to that. I think her power hungry nature is actually one of her bigger flaws, but then you look at the city that she built in Irontown. She took in lepers and societal outcasts. She bought out the contracts of sex workers and she gave them a place to live where they were actually kind of in charge. Like Irontown is very a woman in charge place, which mm-hmm. I didn't realize when I was a kid until I watched it again as an adult. And you see them all in their like kimonos. <laughs> Wearing nothing but these kind of like skimpy little kimonos, working at the forge, (laughs) telling all the men what to do, (laughs) and like truly being the breadwinners for that town because they are the ones who are making the iron, they are making these guns, they are the reason... Yeah, they're working in the factory. Mm -hmm. They're the reason this town is prosperous. And her her having the lepers there as well, there was some conversation over the years of whether they were actually lepers. And Miyazaki came out and said, like, yes, that's exactly what they were, which is... But that doesn't necessarily mean that you deserve to just be tucked away mm-hmm. and not have a chance to live anymore. Whereas Lady Oboshi gave them a place where they, like, they have, like, almost the highest place of honor in the city. Mm-hmm. They are up in her private garden and they have their beautiful little house up by this garden and they're creating things. It's a really beautiful city, but then it's unfortunate because you see this beautiful town where all of these people who normally would not have had control over their own lives are getting agency, but it's coming at the cost of nature and it's hurting the forest around them. Mm-hmm. And it's also attracting the emperor and like his samurais who want that money. And <laughs> she is kind of stuck in the middle of all of this and doesn't necessarily realize just how much she's hurting nature. She believes that it's kind of just standing in her way mm-hmm. because, I mean, she's prideful and that can sometimes be an issue. <laughs> yes. Yes. She's a very complex character because on one hand depending on like maybe the scene she's in you can be like oh she's calculating and in some ways manipulative because she Mm -hmm. can know how to control a situation and and in some cases you can be like that's really shitty and that's a red flag but in other ways it's just more of a sign that she understands the way of certain rules in the world of human society And it's like sometimes you have to put on a face 
in order to whether it's like protect yourself, protect other people that you are not that she's in charge of, but everyone at her town views her as like like their hero in a mm-hmm. way. They all respect her. And so yeah, and with that probably comes a lot of weight on her shoulders and I think she's very smart. She's definitely kind and it I didn't see that the first little bit when I remember oh. watching it <laughs> both as a kid and as an adult. You're just like, why are you shooting the wolves? Like, why are you doing these things? Why do you have a gun? Like, those aren't necessarily good things. Mm -hmm. But then you see how kind she is to the people at her town, that she, like, cares about them. Like you said, she took in the lepers, and she checks on them and makes sure they're okay. Like, she's not having other people do that. No. She's very much so, like, going into every aspect of the town, checking in, helping, make sure she's pulling her weight Mm-hmm. And not just like sitting in the sidelines. Yeah. Like a like a ruler is on top of a high, high tower. Yeah. And like it's done in such a subtle way, the way that she protects mm-hmm. and has given this opportunity to those who live in Irontown. And there's a, a very short little scene that I think I just like I was too young to understand the implications of the scene. And it's. When Ashitaka is first being shown around, one of the workers says, kind of makes an offhand comment about how the men don't touch them unless they want them to. And just that little thing is like, these women in that era of the world would not have been treated well in the line of work that they had been in before. And so now they have like bodily autonomy, which is incredible and they have like everybody in that town is equals like the women might be a little might think they're a little bit better (laughs) than the men because they're the ones working and they're kind of a little bit more in charge but like they are all equals in the way that they treat each other and I think that that's a really kind of lovely dynamic that they put in that Again, like I missed as a kid. I just I didn't understand. I thought like, oh well, like these are kind of the bad guys. But I never necessarily thought that they were evil. But like clearly, I wanted Princess Mononoke to win. <laughs> oh no, of course. Yeah. It, the whole movie sets you up where you want to care for the nature. Yes. The the environment, the creatures, the animals. Especially when you look at a town that Ashitaka's from, you're like, oh, why can't everyone just live in harmony? Like, like, like these Ashitaka other villages and, you're and cool. clans, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yakul is a red elk, I think is what he's called. And he's such a sweet boy. And him and Ashitaka are like best friends. And it's the cutest. I always wanted a Yakul. I know. I just wanted to live with all the nature. There's a a scene where San brings Ashitaka to like um, the forest spirits little... I guess you could say some people there might view it as like his temple or his sacred space like within kind of grove. the grove and like at one point son's like you should go like telling you cool like you should leave you're free and yeah cool just like hangs out is like no i know no. but no yeah i'm good oh my gosh at one point yeah cool gets like shot in the butt and ashitaka's like i have to go you wait here like you'll be safe stay with the villagers and he just is like limping after him <laughs> <laughs> and 
and it just like breaks my heart. It doesn't help that my dog at the moment is limping sometimes when he exercises too much because he has a sore knee. And so I'm just like, ah, oh, my baby. Like sweet animals. <laughs> Those oh. sweet, loyal boys. <laughs> I know this movie like gets anyone that loves animals to any extent the whole time. I remember yes. that's why I think I didn't like Lady Eboshi because I'm like, you're shooting at the wolves! You're hurting! <laughs> why? And well, I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but she's the whole reason Ashitaka is cursed is because she is the one who shot the boar god. Mm-hmm. And what was it? the Na- iron... Nago or something is Nago, the, yeah. the boar I... god's name? Yeah, I believe the first one is Nago and then the second one is Akoto. Because there's two boars. Yes. Akoto is the old blind white one. But she's the one who shot him and the iron pellet remained in his body and like poisoned him and created this It's a creepy looking curse rot thing. It's so creepy. Like, Um, oh, wormy and like (laughs) slimy tent. I read somewhere that on a technical sense, the reason why it looks so creepy is because Ghibli is kind of known for crisp lines, but because of the way that they they drew it and the way that they animated it, it's less like sure. The lines are shaky and sometimes they're opaque and sometimes they're dark. And because like you don't necessarily pick it up unless you're looking for it, but it's different than everything else. Everything else is crisp and clean and kind of beautiful in a way. And then there's this tentacly rot that is the image of poison and Hate bad. and rage and, <laughs> and anger. anger and violence. And your brain just immediately, it's just so opposing of everything else that you see. And I think that that is incredibly clever and it totally comes through because you just you immediately know like it's so jittery and it's viscerally like, uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, it's so uncomfortable. They do such a good job at making you feel all different kinds of emotions throughout this movie. You feel fear, like you feel you feel happy, like you feel sad. <laughs> I remember there are two specific scenes that just terrified me as a kid. And near the end, kind of during the climax, there are some samurai warriors who, in order to kill the boar god Okoto, they wear pelts. Yeah, animal pelts. Of other boars. And they're kind of sagging and their eyes are black and hollow. And just the way that they moved, I had nightmares about (laughs) these, Mm -hmm. like the imagery of these humans moving around in the boar pelts because since he's blind he could just smell them and he's like they're my family they're my children they're here to fight with me but it wasn't them and it's like heartbreaking and so sad (laughs) i know yeah it is so weird and creepy i remember that scene too and i think like on the notion of just some of the creepiness in specific not all Ghibli movies have the same feeling that Princess Mononoke does, but no. all Ghibli movies have that, like, you know right away it's a Ghibli movie because of the coloring and the yes. style. And, like, Princess Mononoke has a lot of, like, 
things that you're like, oh, that's creepy or that's like mm-hmm. makes me uncomfortable. But then the color yeah. palette is so crisp and bright and like oh, it's just it's so beautiful. And actually in an interview, Miyazaki talked about how he had wanted to do something different with this film mm-hmm. because the two past hits were My Neighbor Totoro and Castle in the Sky. So like both good. Very beautiful kind of sometimes melancholy but still happy beautiful movies and he kind of had portrayed nature as being very passive in those movies whereas in Princess Mononoke he wanted to show it in an aggressive way he wanted to show that nature will fight back but it just may not be in the way that you think it does He's such a weirdo, Miyazaki, but God, he just makes some incredible art. <laughs> he is wonderful in so many ways that he created these stories. Yeah. This one took 16 years. What? Really? Yeah. It's considered one of his masterpieces and three years to produce. 16 Isn't that wild? years? Holy crap. Yeah. The other scary part from the movie was with San. There's like a big battle scene where San goes into battle with the boar clan and the wolves do go and help, but Moro had warned them against it. She's like, they're, you're not going to win. We're kind of on the losing side here. And so she advised against it, but boars are kind of hotheads in the story. And so San also being a hothead And wanting to help protect her home, decided to go in with them. And afterwards, Okoto is hurt. And so she's guiding him back to the grove to hopefully get the forest spirit to heal him. And he starts giving in to the poison and the anger. And so he starts getting these tentacles all over him, just like the first boar god. And they're kind of coming out of him and all of his cuts And then they start, like, pulling her into him and, like, her, like, screaming and, like, begging him to, like, not give in and to keep hold of his spirit and his goodness is, like, so fucking scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was, like, traumatized as a child. Not the beheading, not the arms going missing. But just, like, this scene where she's just screaming and then, like, Ashitaka tries to save her. And it's beautiful and horrifying and just an absolute stunning scene that just, yeah, terrified me as a child. <laughs> um, so something I guess I'd like to kind of, like, bring back to the focus of San and Lady Eboshi. We talk about their impact and what they're like at the beginning of the movie. In your, I I have my own thoughts about them at the end, but this is your episode, Allison. Please tell me, <laughs> how did you view their change or what did you notice if there was any change for why or why not near the end for either of these two powerhouse characters? So this is actually a good time for me to bring up the major scene that I want to talk about. I've kind of touched on all the other scenes that I wanted to talk about, but the first one is the first time we see Iboshi 
and San truly interact is when they have that fight in Irontown where San breaks in and she's just going after Eboshi. She doesn't necessarily want to kill anybody else. I believe they end up shooting her before they actually truly get in a fight or shooting at her. And Eboshi says, cut off a wolf's head and it still has the power to bite. So she, she respects San and her abilities and her powers and the two of them fight and there is no there's no discussion they just are on opposite sides and they fight and then Ashitaka does break it up and he claims San as his which is a little eh, but <laughs> you know he does it for to save her life they are just both so sure that what they're doing is right and then by the end of the movie they're both questioning that but still believe in what they were doing which is wild because San at the end of the movie basically says I cannot forgive humans but I understand them better so I think she learns that everything isn't necessarily black and white and Eboshi at the end learns that there is a better way you don't have to sacrifice nature in order to prosper and she still believes in Irontown and she still believes in providing a place for people to be safe and have an opportunity but she wants to do it better it's not necessarily a lot of growth but it's growth in the right direction which I think is just so beautifully shown throughout the movie is you see them fighting against change the whole time they are fighting against understanding each other and then by the end they understand each other just a little bit but it's the beginning of something mm-hmm. it's not the end yeah okay i was thank you for answering my question <laughs> yeah well, i how did you feel about it oh uh, uh, i how am I going to put this into words? I, in a way, I remember when I first watched it as a kid, and this is just like me trying to remember, I had a little bit of a of disappointment, I think. Okay. And I think that's just because the, the other movies I've seen of Studio Ghibli before Princess Mononoke was like Spirited Away. It had a clear mm-hmm. defined ending. Yes. And then the other one was Howl's Moving Castle, which also, again, mm-hmm. clear, defined ending from either sides. So I think when I watched Princess Mononoke, I was kind of surprised with the ending choice. And I felt a little bit let down because I think I was expecting I was I was expecting them to give me something clear and defined that mm-hmm. I was used to in other other movies as a kid, right? Like as a kid I never really got ambiguous endings or endings where it's like, well, here's yeah, some answers, here's a little bit of change in one area, but it's not like something big and like bow-wrapped. Yeah. So I think at first I was like a little disappointed as a kid, but Having watched it again last year in, in 2020 and seeing the ending, it felt cathartic in a good way. Yeah. It was I, a very risky choice Yeah, to like, put such complex ideas in a film 
somewhat directed towards children because Ghibli has always been very kind of for everyone. Yeah. You can watch this it at one was any stage super in your life. Mature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the style choice that makes it be like kiddish or youthful yeah. is the is the style that most of the stuff is in except for the freaking mm-hmm. forest spirit. Creepy as heck. <sighs> I <laughs> the forest spirit with the human face me. on the like deer body. Yeah. With the like big antlers. And yeah. The eyes, I didn't like the little the sprites. Big piercing eyes into your soul. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh." Uh, the little sprites scared me more. The little really? ones, like with their ticking heads. Oh, I liked them. <laughs> they I creeped me them. out. <laughs> um, uh, but I guess to answer your question, I was conflicted with the, like, I loved the story. And then it was just like the ending of it where I was like, as a kid, what? Yeah. Okay. Um, but then as an adult, I was very much like, no, that makes sense. Like that was, I think the only I think it was the logical way to end the story Mm -hmm. because I think in some ways anything else could have been a little bit of a disservice to all the characters and the the theme that Miyazaki was going for. Yeah. Yeah. And like the only movie that I had seen before this from Ghibli was uh, My Neighbor Totoro. And so I had seen that, Mm -hmm. though, when I was quite a bit younger And so by the time that I had actually started getting into Studio Ghibli movies, I was like 11. So I was a little bit older and Princess Mononoke was the first one. And I think I kind of enjoyed the more mature themes. I was getting to that kind of age in childhood where you're just like, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be a grown up. And mom, stop calling me a kid. Uh, I also 100% do not think that my mother knew how violent this movie was. (laughs) I don't think. No, no, no. I do not think she would have let me watch this movie if she had actually ever seen it. But I loved it anyways. Um, A couple more quick little things that I wanted to touch on before I get into just a couple fun facts. When I had mentioned Lady Eboshi saying that thing about the wolf's head still having the power to bite, she gets her arm ripped off by Morrow's head at the end of the movie. Right! <laughs> Which <laughs> is just such, like, a a little, like, random bit of foreshadowing that, like, you do not <laughs> think is going to happen. And it's like, no, no, it happened. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> And the other thing is, uh, near the end of the movie, during all the battles, which this movie had so many battles and fights, it was really, like, it was really fun in that way. <laughs> uh, there's, like, a messenger that comes to the walls of Irontown and says, you ladies need to be taught some respect. And one of the women says, respect? What's that? And another one says, we haven't had any respect since the day we were born. And then they all make, like, the raspberry sound. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just so cute seeing them kind of, like, fight for their home and their town. And Mm -hmm. there's just so many fun women in this movie. And during my research for my fun fact number one, uh, Neil Gaiman was in charge of the English dub. Really? Yes. Yes, so Miyazaki is notoriously strict when it comes to the English versions of his movies. Fair, I get that. Because 
Nausicaa, when it first came to America to be shown on American screens, was butchered. The time was cut. The story was changed. So it was like a bunch of like bad nature monsters and like the the nuance and the beauty of Nausicaa was like completely sucked out. All of the soul of that movie had just been like murdered by American studios because they just they just don't understand. There's a different storytelling in Japan. Very much so. Yeah. Um, Originally, they had wanted Quentin Tarantino to do it, but he's the one who suggested Neil Gaiman. And I think Gaiman brought in that kind of subtle storytelling that he's so good at. And he managed to keep the soul of the movie while still changing things enough to make it palatable for American audiences. Mm-hmm. And he, unlike some of the other executives at Miramax, which was the studio at the time, um, understood Ashitaka being a prince. And it's like, well, he doesn't need palaces. He doesn't need beautiful clothing. He doesn't need money to be a prince. Being a prince is about the way you act. It's about being a leader. It's about like some sort of some air of regality that he understood and some other executives didn't, which I just, I think he did such an amazing job and it clearly shows that he, he kind of understood the feeling of the movie, the spirit of it, as it were. As it, as um, it were. Yes. My last fun fact is San has been cited as an inspiration for one of my other favorite fabulous fictional females, oh. Ahsoka Tano. <gasps> I can see that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I so like her fighting that. style, her connection to nature, all of that was kind of taken from this movie by like some of the creators from the Star Wars, the Clone Wars places, nice. which I think is really cool. I love um, it. Do you want to tell me your top three Ghibli movies in oh. no particular order, but like they oh. come to mind? Oh. So, Princess Mononoke is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it would actually probably be Spirited Away, because I always loved Alice in Wonderland, and Spirited Away has that same kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched Spirited Away around the time when I was like 12 or 13, so the idea of moving away from your friends really just, I got that. Yeah, no, I get <laughs> I <that>. understood. <laughs> You're like, I that feel girl's a connection. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt a connection to that main girl. And then the other one uh, is actually Kiki's Delivery Service. Ooh. That one's my my third favorite. I love that one because Kiki's just so cool. Just a little witch. I mean, I, I know. Like, witch culture in the 90s is notorious, but Kiki was the beginning of my foray into the, the genre of witch. <laughs> <laughs> of witchiness. <laughs> of witchiness so i want to close off with a really beautiful statement from hayao miyazaki okay and clearly you have heard for the past while why i love these characters but here's kind of a statement about the movie and even more reason for you to go watch it i mean they're on netflix you don't (laughs) you don't have an excuse anymore go watch all the ghibli movies they are available (laughs) uh so he said I am not attempting to solve the world's problems. There can never be a happy ending in the battle between humanity and ferocious gods. Yet even amidst hatred and carnage, life is still worth living. 
It is possible for wonderful encounters and beautiful things to exist. I will depict animosity, but that is in order to show the fact that there is something more precious. I depict the bondage of a curse in order to show the joy of liberation. What I will show is the boy reaching an understanding of the girl and the process of the girl's heart opening up to the boy. In the end, the girl may say to the boy, I love you, Ashitaka, but I can't forgive human beings. The boy will smile and say, that's all right. Won't you live together with me? This is the kind of film I want to make. And I think he succeeded. <laughs> he It's a really well. So many people love the movie. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful movie. I'd agree. I agree. It's mm-hmm. it's a masterpiece. Very much I'm looking so. at pictures of the movie on my phone. <laughs> You're just like, God, this is such a pretty movie. <laughs> I was like, God damn, I forgot. It's like the scene where she gorgeous. has the knife to Ashitaka's throat, and oh. he's like, "You are beautiful." <laughs> uh, that yeah. scene gets reused in so many like artists' redraws and renditions. Mm-hmm. It's just so. Lady Eboshi is actually also one of the only female characters. Uh, to be depicted with red lipstick. Mm. Studio, or with to be depicted with red lipstick slash visible lips. Uh, most of uh, Hayao Miyazaki's characters, you are it's just kind of like a mouth. It's not lips. Yeah. yeah. So, just a weird fun fact. <laughs> so, Fonda, what are you excited about? <sighs> There's a lot of things. I feel like some of the stuff I want to talk about is repetitive. <laughs> like... Dungeons and Dragons and Critical Role, and I'm still playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla. But like, I was thinking about it, and I'm just really excited about my dog. (laughs) That's awesome. I would love to drop a series or like a fandom or like something, but I'm just like loving my dog lately. Now that I didn't love my dog previously, but just like kind of like having been saying San, San. Son, over Son. and over Son. in this episode. <laughs> I know. I just like love my dog so damn much. And I was just thinking about it today because of I could see her in view while we were recording this episode. And I was just like, oh, I love her. <laughs> um, so I'm going to plug so my dog's Instagram. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, if you are a fan of dogs and uh, you like me, uh, think everyone should have an Instagram for their dog, uh, you can follow my dog at Live Laugh Son on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's my plug. <laughs> that's what I'm excited nice. about. So this is a five-star review that got left on our iTunes page um, in 2020. It's called Fun, Informative, Refreshing with an exclamation point. Perfect for anyone interested in finding out more about a variety of fictional females while being thoroughly entertained by the brilliant and enthusiastic hosts Allison and Fonda. I'm informed and entranced with this show. Four exclamation points. (laughs) Oh. From uh, uh, CAG, K-A-G-14 is the user. Thank you so much. Yay. Thank you. Very nice. Very sweet. And for all of our listeners out there, you can find us wherever podcasts can be found. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. 
And you can follow us on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram at WenchBenchPod. And if you want to reach out, you can totally send us an email at WenchBenchPod at gmail.com. All of the art for the Wench Bench was designed by the wonderful Tessa Joyce Rican. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Wherevile. And at the moment, I don't know by the time this episode comes out um, if there will be any other slots open and available. Um, but they're currently taking some art commissions. Yes. So you should totally check it out. Mm-hmm. But besides that, thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Fonda. <laughs> Thanks, babe. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>